What's up, Gator Nation? Good morning, Gator Nation. You're listening to Gator Nation. And the Gators have the biggest lead of the day. You're listening to Morning Edition on WUMT. From the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communications. Three, two, one, we're live. Hi, everyone. This is The Communicator, the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communications podcast, where we dive into the latest in media, picking the brains of top faculty and staff around the Gator Nation. I'm Matt Abramson, Director of Media Services with WFT, with Ariana Brito. Hi, everyone. And Taylor Vorberger. What's up? Thanks for having me. Today, we're speaking with Rachel Grant, Assistant Professor with the CJC, focusing on media studies of race, gender, and class. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thank you for having me. So in July, you published Selling Brianna, Twitter Responses to Brianna Taylor on the cover of Oh! The Oprah Magazine and Vanity Fair. What drew you to this research and what conclusions did you draw from it? What really drew me to this research project is I remember actually buying the Oprah cover in Oprah Magazine with Brianna Taylor on it. And I was talking to my two colleagues of course, in the middle of the pandemic, and I was like, we should do a research project on this. But of course, because the pandemic and things that were going on, we kind of lost track. So the Journal of Journalism Mass Communication Quarterly released a special issue, and it was focusing on Black Lives Matter. So we revisited this project, and particularly to focus on the conversation of Breonna Taylor. I think within the Black Lives Matter movement, Breonna Taylor's story and narrative, especially in the media coverage, was very different than what we saw compared to George Floyd and other black men who had been killed by police or had altercations with the police. And the fact that she was a black woman and the fact that she was killed within her home, we felt as if these covers did not really touch on the tragedy at hand and at really just kind of downplayed the actual violence that took place. And so when we looked at the project, we decided to look at the Twitter responses versus the actual media coverage, because the media coverage of the actual covers was very celebratory. It was very focused on the action of making this case aware. But I think as we saw and the conclusions that we found, the idea that Breonna Taylor's death had to be martyred or put on a cover, but did not actually address the actual focus of Black lives, um, kind of, again, commodified her death. So the idea that Black death was seen as a racial commodification that white magazines, because while Oprah is the editor of this magazine and is a Black woman, Oprah Magazine does predominantly have a target audience of affluent and middle-class white women. Definitely Vanity Fair is a upper-class population. We talk about the average salary of somebody who reads that magazine. We felt as if, while it brought awareness, it very much was paradoxical in the fact that it still made a profit off of black death. There was no mention of giving money or understanding the racism or the violence or the issues between police and black communities. So we kind of wanted to centralize on that, but as well as focus on black womanhood and images and conversations around black womanhood and black lives matter. In addition to race and gender, which are, are somewhat obvious in the story, what role did class play in the coverage and the reactions of the story? So as I mentioned before, like the target audiences of these magazines are predominantly mainstream white. Um, and so you have these very deep conversations that have to be had. Yes, you have made and given awareness to white audiences about Breonna Taylor's story. And in fact, I think that's that's a, maybe a plus of this. 
But at the same time, you are putting it in a in a format that very much fits these westernized beauty standards. So the idea that these were not actual images, but re uh, either drawings or animations of, of Breonna Taylor, reimagining her in a in a more beauty aesthetic. So again, you had her in that blue dress on Vanity Fair. Um, and yes, Oprah typically puts herself on her own magazine. And so, yes, there's some significance to putting Breonna Taylor on that magazine. But that that drawing, again, it wasn't an actual photo. And so I think we have to understand how we edit and view visuals. Because, again, there is a visual aesthetic to the idea of art and a class association and how we view artistic expressions as well versus live images and maybe more uh, hardcore images of live media. So, uh, But class did make a big role, I think, in terms of people were talking, um, especially on Twitter, about where, where, where was the money going to? Where were the profits or the proceeds for that magazine going to? And very much there was not a response. I mean, Oprah did mention a, a legal defense, but she did not emphasize that legal defense any other way except for on the billboards that she bought in Kentucky. But other than that, you, you kind of did not have a conversation around money and that equity that on an economic standpoint. And meanwhile, this is an opportunity where that could have been sort of the pivot point. I think it could have been a massive place where you could have engaged mainstream and as well as white audiences into the disparities, especially from... If you think about some of the things that go into the idea of policing, sometimes people are, are, are arrested or put into jail for processes that acquire economic understanding. So unpaid parking tickets, unpaid child support, the ability, again, of about how we think about bail and all these mm -hmm. things that come involved. And so, you know, there definitely could have been a class conversation, but there wasn't. And I think that also has to be a part of that conversation. Do you see improvements in general, globally, or in some cases with the way that these stories are covered? Or is it kind of, you know, every organization acts differently and maybe it's their audience they're they're catering to, but do you see improvements overall? I would say, I think in terms of publications and, and communications as well, I think people are more aware. I think we have the idea of what diversity and inclusion includes, but we also have the idea of of corporate social responsibility in terms of advertisers and public relation practitioners. But I think some of that is still very surface level. So we you have performative, and I think that's what we saw with Breonna Taylor. It's very performative, very social, surface level. Um, so you have this idea that, yes, we're bringing awareness, but we're not actually doing more than just making people aware. Like the Pepsi ad with uh, Jenner. I show that Pepsi <laughs> ad every semester, and my students are like, yes. So Kendall Jenner thought she could solve racism with a Pepsi. But yes, yeah, so we, we see those conversations happen, and I think, so every time we have a step, there's also a misstep. And I think that's that's just what it's going to be over evolution. I mean, we have the same thing when we focus on LGBT issues and people think, okay, we can put a rainbow on something and that just means we've, we've become inclusive to uh, LGBT people or the trans community or, you know, so there's just a lack of, of depth. There's performative and then there's surface. And I think 
we we just we know these symbols and we know these words. And I think that's as media, we've educated people to know these words. Uh, we've educated people to ask for pronouns. Years ago, you could never get anybody to say pronouns. But now everybody's like, well, tell me what your pronouns are. So I think there's positive, but I think there's also where there's going to continue to be a misstep in some places. Certainly. Um, I think of audience a lot, too. And in commercial news, usually the exploitable stories, the controversial ones get the most coverage. Uh, As the saying goes, if it bleeds, it leads. How can corporate and even public media engage with stories like this that intersect race and sexism and classism in a way that actually avoids the commodification? So I think the biggest thing if we need to really engage with these conversations is, and I'm a massive supporter of historical context, Historical context, cultural context, we're definitely hearing uh, in the state of Florida and other states of the erasure of history for some reasons. Uh, But I think if we erase that history, we don't understand why and how we've gotten to where we are. We don't understand the legacies of policing within this country or the war on drugs or the war on crime. And so it's not as if we have these understandings that are not based in the history of that of those communities, and especially the history between the relationship between the criminal justice system and the African American community or marginalized communities, um, and particularly thinking about race and gender, we we know that the hashtag Say Your Name movement had to come out after the fact because of Black Lives Matter because you had an erasure of of black women and black trans women and LGBT individuals who are also being killed by the police. So I think it's more based in understanding of, are we covering these communities and covering the discrimination and oppression of individuals that highlights that their unique experiences need to be focused on? Not the fact that they exist, but also the fact that there is a system in which they have to exist in. So putting that context in, so as well as history, but also the cultural context. I think a lot of people, when we were looking at the coverage of Ferguson, missed the actual aspect of what it meant to be and live and exist in Ferguson. And so um, the policing that would go on and the differences of policing between county lines. And so you assumed that what was going on with Mike Brown was just one isolated incident, but it was a part of many multiple incidents that happened that people were not aware of. And so it's a lot of that context in which we have to see what is the lay of that land, um, what is actually happening in that community, and actually talk to the individuals in the community instead of just assuming or having a conversation with them. You were the research director of the Narrative Justice Project as well. What was the mission of this project, and how did the collaboration with the Wakeman Agency come to be? So Vanessa Wakeman was a visiting professor here in our public relations department. And so we collaborated on a project to focus on really highlighting what would happen in 2020 in terms of looking at the stories that were being told, the narratives that were being brought up. Um, in terms of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and other brown and black individuals who were being killed by the police. And so we noticed in terms of those conversations a lack of really understanding between not only the people who were being interviewed, but also the journalists and communicators involved. And so the Narrative Justice Project still is very much a tactical response 
to that in terms of how we gain justice as well as support communities Mm -hmm. to interact with the media. So during the summer of 2021, we did several interviews via Zoom that focused on the idea of really engaging with communities. So most of the communities that we engaged with were in New York. And we did, I believe it was four to five sessions on Zoom. And we'd meet for maybe about an hour, two hours, and do the training. And so Vanessa and her staff had somebody complete the training and do the training. And in between the training, we would have these conversations and dialogues. So it was a very much observation as well as a focus group, because afterwards I would ask questions. We touched on a lot of different issues that were going on currently with the media. So we talked about the celebration and commemoration of the first Juneteenth holiday Mm -hmm. that happened. Talked about the Breonna Taylor and magazine covers. We talked about media coverage of the Tulsa massacre and the commemoration of that. Um, and we, you know, we were able to engage with the, with the community in terms of how they see media and the trust that they built, but also how do we tell our stories? So, and I say we, because it's, again, how do we tell stories that invoke the humanity and not the negative tropes, but the counter stories and the counter narratives that actually need to be told. So a lot of the research that I focused on and writing up about that project focused on the idea of counter narratives and counter stories. And not in terms of that the media doesn't understand how to write those stories, but I think in terms of the media does not understand that there's very much a a narrative in which justice can be exposed and justice can be um, elevated that brown and black people would want to be the central aspect of the story. Not the conflict, not the stereotypes, but the aspect of justice that they're trying to receive. Absolutely. What role did research and data play in developing this project, especially as the director of research? So, like I said, it's been a lot of time transmitting and transcribing interviews, um, really sitting down and listening. Because, again, while we had people who would come back, And the conversations would change. So one thing I really enjoyed about this project is we made it open for the people to come back. And we had people who came back multiple times. So the training might have been the same. The training might have hit the same points. But because of the individuals who were involved, they they formed this very much this community in which they thought about these different ideas and shared different ideas. And you had people aging from the ages of 19 all the way up to 56, Um, And predominantly black men, which is, you know, I think that's a voice we sometimes, yes, we hear a lot, but I don't think we hear it from a perspective of their actual experiences and how they relate to the actual stereotypes that are affecting them. And so listening to that data and then six months later, we did a survey to follow up with the individuals to see how they responded, how they actually interacted. A lot of them are involved in activism within the New York neighborhood In terms of politics, most of them were involved in an organization that focuses on community building. And so they were able to use that understanding as well as understand what and how media, when they interact with media, what they're actually looking for. I think there's a very much an invisible layer and a wall to how media understands its audiences and the community and the people that they cover, as well as those people that they want to interact with them. And so um, how to do a soundbite, how to engage and get your point across in a short way, a short few seconds, and also how to, again, 
understand what your mission is and how do you engage with that conversation. So I think it was both interactive on both sides, um, but as well as how to do really good research. So proud of that project. Um, so you mentioned a bunch of examples that are kind of 2020, 2021. Are there any uh, recent and contemporary issues and, and sort of things along this vein that we're witnessing in real time that maybe we're not seeing it the way that we could be and understanding it the way that uh, the media ideally would be portraying it? <laughs> I know it's, so a t- I know it's a, touchy. That's a, that's a lot to cover that, in that, in that conversation. I think, I think the biggest thing what we're seeing now is it's very much a conversation of theory. I think media has become increasingly aware of theoretical frameworks, but not the actual understanding of those theoretical frameworks. Um, critical race theory, uh, the idea of white supremacy, the idea of white privilege, these are all very much buzzwords that people have now been, I don't want to say exposed, because exposure means that, you know, you might understand, but I think it's like we they're buzzwords that fly around. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if people truly understand the academic or the scholarly context of those conversations. And so I definitely think that that is our current conversation. As much as some of the things that are still occurring, we still have issues with policing and black individuals. We still have issues in terms of Me Too and the killing of black and brown trans individuals. But I think now we're seeing a more, I hate to say, elevated conversation of how we view race and how we understand these these theories. And so the abstracts and the conceptual understandings are being very much dissected currently. And my follow-up to that is, is the Narrative Justice Project ongoing? How can people get involved? We are in a process. <laughs> um, I, I have public. I've worked on publishing some work and so I right now just really focusing on getting the research out um, definitely we'll see what comes of it with uh, Vanessa but right now just the research is hopefully being processed and being published soon um, submitted to some journals so, so we'll see hopefully the research will be out and about for people to read into the public pretty soon I'm Glenn Richards from WUFT Amplified. If you're like me, you appreciate how special the local music scene is here in North Central Florida, featuring indie rock, hip-hop, bluegrass, and so much more. WUFT Amplified is Florida's music series, filmed right here in Weimar Hall. This show rocks, guys, seriously. And you might not realize that WUFT Amplified is produced entirely by UFCJC staff and students. To watch past episodes and discover your new favorite bands, check out wuft.org slash amplified. Hi, Rachel. This is Ariana. As a student, I'm just now discovering what I want to do professionally. When you were in college at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, did you always know that your work would center around your passion for social inquiry and social justice? So I think... For probably everybody who's a student now, you do not know what you want to do, and that is perfectly normal. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely uh, didn't really know I wanted to go into communications until probably when I was the very end of my high school. Um, During I I served on the yearbook staff. I was the editor of the yearbook. I worked on the school newspaper. Did a lot of those different things. Surprisingly, I—well, I wouldn't say surprisingly because— 
I have talent. But <laughs> <laughs> I was able to win a few awards when I was uh, at these are state and regional awards as a student. So I felt like, okay, this is kind of where I wanted to go. And originally, I wanted to be a magazine editor, and I have not yet achieved that goal. But <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, I was very much interested in magazines. It wasn't so much of the social inquiry stuff. For me, what kind of made that transition was um, being on my college campus and having professors who were really engaging around conversations of history and race and gender. And so a lot of what I got to cover as a part of the newspaper staff and eventually being the news editor uh, was focused on those issues. Being in Arkansas and at the time I hadn't grown up in Arkansas, I was living in Texas before this, I was increasingly aware of some of the issues that Arkansas was bringing up in terms of race. And so that was very much the conversation that was going on at the time. Uh, The Gen 6 was going on also at the same time. And so I think it was more of what was being brought to the forefront in terms of race at that time. And also just really, you know, when you learn the history and the context of where you live, and I think... This is always something very important for students. Every place you live as a journalist or a communicator will be different. I even had a professor who said this, if you move to a state, you should read its state history. And so even coming here and reading about Florida and the and Rosewood and the, um, and the Liberty City riots, there's so much to be invested in understanding. Excellent. And, you know, during your time as an undergrad student in Arkansas, uh, you were a news editor at the Forum, and you won a first place award in feature writing for a story called Still Not Healed, Little Rock Central High School 50 Years Later. Was that a hard story to tell in that community? Actually, it wasn't. So the Little Rock Central High School crisis happened in 1957. This happened after Brown versus the Board of Education, which required that schools across this nation integrate. And then an addendum was added that they do it at all deliberate speed. Well, of course, speed and deliberate speed were up to interpretation. So at that time, Daisy Bates, as well as nine students, volunteered to integrate Little Rock Central High School in 1957. Um, They were, of course, met by an angry mob. And eventually the president at the time had to send in the National Guard to allow the students to actually enter the school. At that time, only one of that only one of the students actually graduated. Ernest Gray was the first black student to graduate for Central High School uh, at that time. And two years later, the schools, most of the school districts in Little Rock and Arkansas shut down. Um, they call it the lost year because they were that serious about stopping integration at that time. So and at the as a result, again, um, several of the students at the time got kicked out. Mitty June Brown was one of the students that got kicked out. She poured chili onto a white student um, after they had harassed her and bullied her, and she was kicked out of the school. So there's very much a campaign inside and outside to get these black students in and out of the school. Uh, Daisy Bates every day would help with the students. Um, her house was the headquarters. And so her and her husband also received threats that crosses burned in their front yard. And so a lot of that was based in a lot of the racism of that day. Believe it or not, uh, the television cameras would ask and the reporters at the time would ask for the mobs to continue repeat violence to make sure it was caught on tape. Mm. So it was very much um, 
a very violent protest. Uh, you saw a lot of not all, as well as the students, but as well as the parents and the people around um, harassing the young students. My mom grew up in Little Rock, and she actually attended Central High School after the crisis. She graduated in the 1960s. And so it wasn't a hard story to hear because she, I had already been exposed to what had happened at Central and seen the progress. Uh, my mom had always talked to me about that, what was like like being there. Um, and then also, like I said, my uncle went to Central after that. So, you know, I knew what Central High School meant. And I knew the magnitude of what had happened. I think the most interesting part about covering that story was actually talking to those individuals who were related to that past. And so, um, you know, most history books have that photo of Minnie Jean Brown and that and the white woman yelling and sneering. And so actually talking to people who were in those photos or people who were associated to that time. So I got to talk to Minnie Jean Brown, Tricky, and her daughter, who at the time was the park ranger or the executive director of the Central High School um, National Historic Site. And then also talking to somebody that Minnie Jean Brown had altercations with and talking to him. And so it was very much an impactful kind of way to tell that story. Little Rock and Arkansas does a really good job of recognizing their part in the civil rights crisis and the civil rights struggle. You know, they are very acknowledgeable of what they have done and what has happened. When I was there last week, you know, they availed, they named a street after the Little Rock Nine. So they're very cognizant of their history and the racial history and the racial turmoil. Um, the Little Rock Nine have a statue at the Capitol. So I think what it shows me is the idea of racial reconciliation. And I think that's where, if we're thinking moving forward, how do we reconcile with the past and the history of discrimination? And so I think that story just shows, in a way, at 50 years, how we have healed, but how we still have so much more to do in terms of healing and moving forward. Was there a lasting impact to the story when you published it? Um, as the author, did you feel like you made a difference in that community specifically? So for me, you know, that story, I don't know if it is a lasting impact to the community, but I know for me as a author and as a scholar, it kind of set my foundation up going forward. I wanted to go forward. So that was my undergraduate degree. My master's, eventually, I decided to go back and focus on Daisy Bates. So Daisy Bates was the leader of the Little Rock Nine and very much the advocate. The black female journalist, her and her husband owned a newspaper and as a result of the Little Rock Central crisis, they lost their newspaper in mm. 1959. And so they had to shut down, and Daisy Bates there launched her career as an activist and a social advocate for black women and black, uh, the black community and the civil rights movement. So I went back and I discovered and kind of went back to history and very much explored my research of Black, the black press and the importance of black women and black activists. So that kind of launched my career for me as a, as a scholar and exploring that. Is there anything from like your research and deep dive in that kind of blew your mind or you weren't prepared? I don't know if I wasn't, it was a deep dive. I wasn't prepared. I think, I think most people, not me, but most people are surprised by some of the horrific things that we don't know about our history. I have students who are constantly surprised by the efforts that people went to to discriminate people based on their skin tone, 
uh, of their gender, their sexuality, all these things that are tended to be very much accepted at the time because of law and because of history and lots and lots of knowledge. But for me, a lot of it isn't surprising. I think I'm I'm usually never really shocked. I'm more of like, hey, like this is I put it within the context. You know, it's very hard to put present tense mindsets on people who did not know. Also, the fact that some of these things were actually lawful in that time. So, you know, it's lawful. It was unlawful for black and white people to intermarry. It was unlawful for black people to drink out of the same water fountain as white people. And so if you understand that's the context, then you understand why there's so much pain and so much violence that was in the civil rights movement and why we're still struggling with it today. Hi, Rachel. This is Taylor. Hi. So you had a pretty amazing undergraduate career, winning awards for your writing. And then you later got your PhD from the University of Missouri-Columbia and then taught at Xavier University of Louisiana. What pulled you back into academia after just a few years in the field? Okay. So in between all this, I always tell people this, I was working. (laughs) I never stopped working. I very much was still Um, Even while I was getting my master's degree, I was working at a newspaper, and then eventually I started to work at corporate advertising at Dillard's and did some online teaching with University of Phoenix. And so all these things were all going on. And so I think the biggest thing for what made me want to come back to academia is I really enjoyed... It's weird to say this. I really enjoyed research. Um, maybe that makes me a little bit of a, of a nerd, but I also think it makes me just understand the magnitude of these stories. Um, I think there's still this idea of stories that need to be uncovered, but at the same time, I very much, um, I wasn't sure if I was going to like teaching. And so that's one reason why I taught for a little bit at the University of Phoenix. Did you like it? You know, that's the part about it that actually really surprised me because I wasn't teaching traditional students. And so I was teaching adults and I was teaching people at night. I was teaching after I had taught, worked my nine to five job. And I still, you know, it was very enjoyable. I remember watching, we were, I was teaching a class on media and I remember watching uh, with my students the Trayvon Martin verdict and how we were able to intersect and have that conversation, even as adults in a room. And I think I really understood the value of my knowledge and my um, my ability to connect with students. And I very much see my, my role as an educator, not as a person who's the person who's the most knowledgeable, but really engaging in conversations with students. Um, because, yes, I can give you knowledge, but can I teach you about how to live a more, I don't want to say inclusive life, but an equitable life? where you recognize other people's experiences? Can I make you more empathetic? Can I make you realize really what's going on around you and make you more aware? And so I I see myself as more as a bridge. During my time at the University of Missouri, I was a part of a group that focused on racial reconciliation. And so even understanding that in a community aspect, that these conversations don't have to be with high emotions. They can be with emotions, but I think you have to bring a level of knowledge. There's a lot that people don't know. And there's a lot that people sh- have to seek for their own knowledge instead of forcing people to tell you. And so I think, you know, 
if you ask my students, hopefully they'll say this, I do provide a safe space for that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to provide a place where knowledge can be explored. So I don't pretend like I know all the answers and I do want to hear what your experiences are and I do want to understand. So yes, for me, that's kind of where I am. I kind of like, again, of all the things I like to do, I like to be a part of a community. I like to build community. I like to focus on the industry. And I definitely would say the research is the part about that where I always could find something that's going on in the industry <laughs> that needs to be uh, that needs to be examined. Um, but yeah, so that I think academia um, and even my experience again. So when I was at Xavier, I taught PR. I didn't teach journalism. And um, my students at that time, we were able to do a, a campaign with the Louisiana Oregon Procurement Agency. And so just being able to go back and educate black individuals about organ donation and then the students put on an event on campus to get people to sign up. Those are kind of the things that I enjoy about academia that maybe the industry doesn't really bring heart to. But I think knowledge and seeing the growth of my students makes me really happy. Absolutely. And I love the side hustle approach. <laughs> yes. Uh, I always joke and I always tell people the reason I have so much media experience is because I very much believed in having a side hustle in some way. Again, like I said, when I was at Dillard's, I was doing event planning for nonprofits and going out and working with the American Cancer Society and raising millions of dollars for cancer research. Um, it kind of kind of balanced that corporate life with the nonprofit life. And then, like, again, teaching for a University of Phoenix. Uh, I worked for a black newspaper as well for a little bit and did freelance for them, did magazine publishing. A lot of my experience, I would say, was definitely when I was still a student. So a lot of it started when I was a sophomore. And when I was a master's student, I would freelance. And I freelance when I worked at Dillard's. Um, so always being able, I think that's the greatest thing about having a communications degree is that you're able to navigate and remotely work however you want to work. And a lot of the skills that you need are very much based to that. So even when I did corporate advertising, I don't, I don't have an advertising degree, and none of the other copywriters in my department had an advertising degree. Okay. But we were all journalists. We were all forward journalists. So we all understood the AP style book. We all understood the importance of how to articulate and tell stories and grammar and all the important things in terms of communicating. So, yeah, so it's fun in turn that, I mean, I got to write scripts for the announcement PSAs and do script writing and knew how to do that with broadcast journalism. So all those things are very always important. Then in 2019, you became a communicator uh, teaching at the CJC. What brought you to Gainesville? Oh, so long story, uh, but I'll try to make it brief. I really enjoyed working at HBCU. I really, Xavier was a different experience because I was with and surrounded by black students, very focused on the idea of social justice. And I enjoyed it. I wish I would have stayed a little bit longer, but I did not. The opportunity here opened up and I knew for some of the things that I wanted to do, I needed definitely more resources, definitely more time to do research. I did a lot more teaching when I was at Xavier, but definitely I think Florida brought me here because of what this university has, the acclaim that it has. And definitely, you know, 
I ironically actually applied to the PhD program, got in, but I picked Missouri. So it was always meant to be that I was here, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I chose later to come. So yeah, definitely Gainesville has a, a big, big draw to it, especially to the understanding of what the university has and what they can bring and just the, you know, the claim of the program and the students here. Well, not to mention now we can claim that we have Rachel Grant here as well. Yes, you could, you could now claim that I'm here. Yes, you have a critical culturalist who's amongst you. And uh, like, again, the job, the job was very much written in a way that sounded like I could be completely me. And I think uh, those jobs are far in between. And I'm, I'm glad to be here and glad to teach what I get to teach and speak the way and, and discuss things within the community. Um, well, on this podcast, we like to give our listeners some like tangible things that they can uh, employ in their lives and in their practicing of media. So are there any best practices you would share with our audience that you would share with your students to tell more accurate, more equitable stories, especially when they involve racism and social justice? So I, I always say this, and I, this is my advice to all my students. My goal in the classroom is not to make you a social justice advocate. My, th- my job is to just make you aware of different experiences. We, as journalists, are constantly challenged, and it's our goal to challenge others and keep people aware. So however you embody that, that is completely up to you, right? But my idea in terms of practices, I think the best thing that we could do as journalists and communicators is to actually ask the people who live that experience. I think we have a massive amount of assumption and my students are constantly afraid to ask people how they identify or constantly afraid to ask, how do you spell your name or where are you from or what is your story, in fact, right? And even asking for pronouns, people are a little hesitant to ask for a person's pronouns. We just assume that was one of the experiences I did with my students when I, when I used to teach the reporting class. I asked them, I was like, how do you know this person identifies with she, her pronouns? And they would look at me, they were like, well, I said, did you ask? So I think there's a lot to understand as journalists. We should just ask the questions, do not assume, do not feel afraid. But I think also we have to understand that people, particularly marginalized people, have lived these experiences and they are constantly being taught or being told that they have to educate. And so I think when you go do a story, you should educate yourself on those experiences. Do not assume that the person's going to tell you all the background it is around this, but really educate yourself around that understanding, around that mission, around that organization. And then finally, I think one thing we need to do as journalists is recognize our positionality. I do this in research and I do this even when I tell my students, there's a moment of self-reflection that we have to be. Like we, we don't come without our own biases. We don't come without our own experiences. And so how we view people, how we understand people is very much based on those lenses. And so when we're writing and choosing stories, are we saying this because we're trying to fit a stereotype or are we really actually understanding that person's community? Best example of this is when I was at the University of Missouri, and yes, I was at the University of Missouri during the 2015 protest. One of my colleagues did a research study on this. One of the individuals had an Afro pick with a fist on it, and what the headline or the caption said with the story is that, you know, this was a sign of, of activism or radicalism of this individual. And 
they asked the guy, and he was like, no, I just like the Afro pic. So we assume all these ideas around people's lives that we actually don't know unless we just ask. And so I think that's where we have to do a better job. I think that's where we have to do to be more connected to the individuals and the people that we're interviewing or focusing on. Absolutely. So our final segment is more of a fun one. So real quick, regular French fries or sweet potato fries? It depends on the meal. That's the very accurate answer. But if you, if you had to pick one on the fly... So we t- which fries are we talking about? Are we talking about Chick-fil-A fries? Are we talking McDonald's fries? Any type. Any type. Do I choice. mean, this is, I'm a fry, I'm a very much a, a fry snob as well. I like, I, I enjoy a good sweet potato fry with a very good, like, nourishing meal, mm-hmm. a sandwich. But if I'm going, like, hamburger, I'd rather have, like, traditional regular fries. All right, that's a point for fries. Yes. So, yes, please, please, if anybody wants to bring fries, I accept fries and chocolate. Those are my, probably my two guilty pleasures of the world. So, yeah. All right, so when you get tenure, that'll be, that'll be the gift. That and donuts. <laughs> now, if you're asking for a real thing, I would like donuts. Absolutely. Uh, and we asked you to come here and talk to us, and we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I, the questions were really good, and I think hopefully people will get something from this conversation Absolutely. <laughs> that's impactful. Thank you so much, Rachel. It was a very insightful conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Communicator Podcast is a production of UF's College of Journalism and Communications. Produced by Matthew Abramson, Taylor Vorberger, and Ariana Brito. Go Gators! <laughs>